Greetings and welcome to New Horizon, the mind and body connection. I'm your host, Dr. Keisha Ross, and we have a wonderful show for you today. We have an international guest coming to us from Ghana. So this will be a pre-recorded episode uh, due to our time difference. So we're going to be talking about racial healing through transcultural leadership experiences and exposure with our guest, Mr. Tim Swain. Before we begin, I'd like to share a little bit about uh, our guest background, and then we will get into it. Tim Swain holds a bachelor's degree in communications, a master's of education from Texas State University in Texas, United States, and a master's of arts in theology and and mission with a concentration in world Christianity from Ghana, Africa. Mr. Swain as an internationally recognized poet, author, speaker, award-winning performer and catalyst for social change. He has been captivating audiences for 17 years. Over the past 15 years, he has headlined and been the keynote speaker at international venues in Mexico, Ghana and the United States of America. Mr. Swain is a global citizen who is a co-founder and director of Anidaso 360, an organization that empowers and equips disenfranchised communities through education, economic, and social advancement. In addition, this organization empowers young adults through international immersion trips to Ghana through transcultural leadership experiences and exposure. Welcome. How are you doing today, Mr. Swain? I am doing fantastic. I hope you can hear me all right. We hear you very well. And and I know it's later um, on your end. We're early in the day and you're in the evening. So thank you for making um, time for us today. No so, problem. It's my pleasure. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. So today's a great show. We'll be speaking about an important topic of healing from trauma, trauma through transatlantic uh, connection for Black people. The transatlantic slave trade has caused, you know, people of African descent to be forcibly migrated to different parts of the world, which has caused a divide among many of our people. Today, our guest, Mr. Swain, will share with us one path for racial healing. So I'm very excited to hear you talk about everything you're doing now, as well as your talk about your transition from the United States to Ghana. So why don't we start, um, Mrs. Swain, you're passionate about minority health, growth, healing. With this in mind, let's start by sharing a bit of your training and professional background. Tell us about what, what you do. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, so just a brief intro about my, my training and background. Um, specifically, I went to school for communication studies. I've always had a passion for speaking. In fact, I used to get into a lot of trouble because, you know, your parents would tell you, don't be back talking to me. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I didn't realize that it was a gift to, to be able yes. to, uh, to communicate and have the desire. But I went to school to do that. And throughout that process, I really realized that I, I really enjoy working with people. Mm. Um, and initially, I was like, I just want to work with youth. But I think I had some transformational experiences on my own, uh, which is, number one, I had, when I started reflecting on my own, um, like, influential people in my life has been people of color, specifically yes. Black folks, specifically uh, yes. uh, people of African descent in America. And, and I think throughout that process, I said, you know what, I really want to be able to help those communities very specifically. So I did my master's degree in education. Uh, then uh, years later, 
when I started going back and forth to Africa, specifically West Africa, Ghana, I realized mm-hmm. that, you know, we are extremely spiritual people, not necessarily yes. tied to a particular religious denomination mm-hmm. or sect. But when you want to understand African people, you have to understand, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the mode of operation. And we are very spiritual, you know, esocentric kind of people. So I went to yes. school and did a master's degree uh, in theology and mission focusing on African, like uh, looking at uh, global Christianity and other religions from the African perspective. Um, and yeah, so all of those things have really just helped me to try to get a better picture about how to understand my peoples so yes. that we can be in position to help them through uh, international leadership experiences and beyond. Thank you for sharing that. And, and you see early on, as you said, there, there was something there, your blessing in terms of being able to speak. And I think that's important also, even as you said that there with our young people, because, you know, some of the older generations, it was like children are seen and, and not heard, right? And wanting to mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. shut down like creativity. And sometimes that's just that creative God energy essence that's in there that wants to flow, but sometimes not understanding that. So thank you for um, sharing that. And thank you for your commitment, as you said, in terms of transformation and modeling, particularly for our people. So you focus your work on marginalized, working with marginalized and underserved communities. Can you speak to us about co-founding of your organization, Anidaso J60, and the inspiration behind it? Yeah, yeah. So I think a, a lot of my experiences are stemmed from transformational experiences in my own life. And, uh, and, and I'm a firm, side note, I'm a firm believer in therapy. And uh, my therapist once told me that you often create what you long for. Um, Love and so that. I remember really, you know, and so I remember really longing for experiences that put together spiritual, cultural, and professional development. So I was having a conversation with colleagues. Um, I believe he's been on your show, Dr. Ron Meeks. Um, yes. I've been knowing him for almost, uh, Lord, I think it's almost 20 years now. And we were having a conversation about the status of black men in America. And mm-hmm. since he and I both work in education, we know that we oftentimes have these high level conversations. We walk away from it, but there's no action point. But at mm-hmm. the end of that conversation, something was different. We looked yes. at each other and we said, listen, if we don't do something different, then we're mm. just as much a part of the problem as everyone else. And so we said, what are we going to do? And we said, well, I don't know. Let's just let's 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 let's, let's trace some of our own transformational agents in our own lives. Number one, it was our relationship with God. Number mm-hmm. two, it was our relationship with the continent of Africa. Mm-hmm. And then number three, it was our ability to navigate this society in a professional context in terms of American society. And so we said, what if we can take black folks to Africa and put all this mm. stuff together? All right. And uh, we had no money. We had no <laughs> money at all. Just a dream. <laughs> it was all. all a dream. <laughs> Just a dream. We had a dollar in a dream to get ourselves some cream. As they, as they said on That's all you need. From Martin Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> and so... And so um, so yeah, so we started and uh, we, 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 we partnered with an organization called the Impact Movement, um, okay. which is the organization that we both work for at one moment in time. It's an organization that serves uh, communities of African descent um, through leadership, uh, specifically to Christian organization. They do mission trips and things like that. And so uh, we, we use their umbrella in terms of their organizational umbrella. Um, we did all the planning. 
Mm-hmm. We came out of pocket a bunch of money. We funded a bunch of young, uh, young men for our pilot program, which was Ghana 360 Leadership Challenge, which was a seven-week experience in Ghana for young men ages 18 to about 22. Um, and then we had a rite of passage at the end. Then after that, we added another program for, uh, for, for men and women of mm-hmm. all ages, uh, 18 and up. And then we just kept uh, going our programs from there. Wow. A dollar and a dream. And thank you for speaking that into existence and then manifesting it. The other part of what I want our listeners to get from this, not only the racial healing, is how that we can create whatever we think about in mind, right? So it's Mm -hmm. not something that you Mm -hmm. had a lot of money to do, but you had the passion for it. And you were like, this is something we had to do. You had a charge, then it moved into action. Because I think that is part of our history as well, right? Through slavery, sometimes there has become the dependence or the passivity in terms of not Mm. necessarily being, you know, master of our destiny, right? being employees mm-hmm. versus um employers so creating something out of nothing which which is us right because we are the original people mm-hmm. um of the earth so when we think about it in that way it's really just moving back to what is already naturally within us so so as you said you thought about your relationship with god relationship with the continent of africa then the professional aspect and navigating all of that and how you can put it all together and boom there you go. A program, a mm-hmm. program, a program is born. So tell us a little bit more in terms of the structure of how um, the programming of transcultural leadership experiences and exposure assist in healing, particularly from racial trauma. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, yeah, that, that's a that's, that, that's a really great question. You know, I'll start by saying I don't think that folks in a highly racialized context, let's say for a black America, because that's where I grew up. I don't think we really understand the depth of racial trauma that we have experienced mm. yes. um, until somebody like yourself explains it to us or we are removed from that context and we're able to kind of really um, decompress. Mm-hmm. And so it, it so Initially, we didn't start off trying to do like any kind of racial healing and stuff like that. We just knew something happened when we take black folks to Africa. And so mm-hmm. we didn't have the particular terminology and all that. But then as we started kind of doing a research and understanding, what we realized is a couple of things. Number one, black folks in America in this highly racialized context, mm-hmm. a lot of us, we're really living in an environment where it's almost like we're under pressure, right? I believe mm-hmm. it's a quote uh, by James uh, Baldwin that talks about to be a Negro in this country is to be in a constant state of rage. Yes, to be conscious and, and Negro, yes. yes, is to be in a constant state of rage. So sometimes there's the denial. So not wanting to wake up because when we wake up, that rage is like, whoop, it's there. Exactly, exactly. You know, some of us are in the sunken place uh, and we, we need to, mm-hmm. you know, come on out the sunken place. But and so what we do specifically is a couple of things. Number one, um, curriculum, right? So our curriculum is Pan-African curriculum that mm-hmm. focuses on uh, the teachings of Pan-African leaders like uh, Kwame Nkrumah, W.E.B. Du Bois. We have a lot of scholastic readings that talk about the history of the transatlantic and not just starting from the place of Africans being taken from uh, uh, yes. West Africa and then to other places. 
for really even going back. Because I think this is what happens oftentimes. Sometimes we just hear the story yes. of what happened mm-hmm. as it only impacts those people after they got on the ships. Mm-hmm. But seldom do we really talk about those families that were destroyed and left yes. behind. Yes. And so we try to have a perspective that enables our young, I say young, I'm sorry, but just all our people who come with us, that perspective to understand that this trauma affected all of us. Mm-hmm. And so, so number one, we have curriculum that focuses on really helping us get educated about the history. Number two, we have a critical assessment about what it means to be a leader in the 21st century. And so we focus on things like health and wellness, right? So we have seminars that talk about mental health, financial mm-hmm. health, um, physical health. And then we actually engage in those exercises like, um, you know, budgeting and things like that. We also have exercise that we do every single morning um, as a part of our trips while those individuals are in Ghana. Um, but then the last thing we do is we have a lot of time of reflection um, and personal kind of like assessment. And so we, we compare what does life look like for a lot of folks on the continent, particularly from the, the, the Ghanaian perspective, right? And then we look at our own lives in terms of assessing things like poverty, assessing things like mm-hmm. our cultural values and our norms. Because every, every Black person that we bring to Africa inevitably they say the same thing, even if they don't have the words to articulate it. They say that when they get off of that plane, they say, it feels like I'm going back to a place that I've yes. never been. Yes. They feel more relaxed. They feel the burden has been uh, taken, up, taken off them. Because yeah. truly for the first time in their life, they are judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, because yeah. everybody looks like them. And I think that when we're engaging in the curriculum, when we're engaging in the leadership and we're engaging in those reflective type of behaviors and exercises, we give people an opportunity to really assess their own identity and then assess their place um, you know, in the world as, as, as a global citizen. Wow. I'm thinking, what, what, what can I recap from that? But I mean, I love what you said made me think of a bridge. You know, and what I love Mm. about your program is it's a bridge because in America, a lot of the teaching is, as you said, like from transatlantic slavery in the terms of meeting the shores here, but not as much of like that teaching of like what happened prior to that. And prior to Mm -hmm. that, as you said, not even slavery, meaning just origins, you know, learning the positive things Mm -hmm. about first university, Timbuktu, science, medicine, Mm -hmm. all that the continent has given in terms of what we know and understand today in terms of modern science, that whatever's happening, it's it's happened there first. So not having that exposure, there's that disconnect. And that's why I think it's so important for you to be here today and speak to from your experience being a Black person from America and now migrating and living on the continent, what those experiences mean for you. So even as you said, racialization, you know, folks who are raised here fully in their lives in America, as you mentioned, may not understand the level of pressure, as you said, until going to another space. 
So that becomes important. So I think that's a good segue that you can talk to us about your personal journey to liberation. And that could include vocationally, culturally, spiritually, and how relocating to Ghana has been an instrumental vehicle in, in that process for you. Yeah. Ooh, Lord. Let me let me let me let me give you the, the truncated version. <laughs> yes. Lord, we'll, we'll be here to, we'll be here to Tuesday. Um, but no, I uh. So I mean, the truncated version is I grew up with some amazing parents. Um, I grew up in a church, a black church, mm-hmm. and I was always cognizant that God existed. Um, when I got older, I wasn't quite sure uh, who He was. And um, I, I was like really, really, really frustrated with um, the, the type of kind of religious environment that I was brought into because what I saw was a lot of pain and struggle and trauma, financial trauma and all this. And I was like, oh, I want that God. <laughs> that, 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 that don't seem like something I want mm, to be a part of. Yeah. Um, and then um, I had some transformational experiences when I got to college. Uh, I met a guy that really um was a guy that embodied what i believe manhood was um joy and liberation and all that mm. and uh and so i came into a relationship uh, with god at a very small church uh in san marcos texas but after that so spiritually my life was transformed in january of 2006 at that church but i still had something that said man like i, I have nobody speaking to the black side of things yeah. Like I feel renewed spiritually, but I'm still mm-hmm. living in a world where I'm still seen as a black person. And there mm-hmm. are implications of that. And I feel tremendously blessed because I met this organization where I, where I met Dr. Ron Meeks. Um, and they actually kind of put together the, the black part and the spiritual part. And uh, they made them a seamless kind of transition. And that organization took us to Africa for the first time, Ghana. Mm-hmm. And so I had this kind of like, and this happened all within a period of like 12 months. So I had like this transformational spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. I had this transformational experience this organization that taught me more about my own black identity. And then on top of that, I went to Africa. So all those things were like boom, boom, boom. And so when I, when I started reflecting on each of those individual pieces, what it helped me understand was that all of these components of my identity are working together to create a to create uh, an identity where I feel free, and to bring it home, right? Just to be real basic and simple, I fast forward to about 2014, where I really, 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 really start thinking about uh, moving to the continent, and the the one of the primary instigating uh, situations was the unfortunate death of Mike Brown. Mm. Yes. And the, the young man that was killed uh, uh, in Ferguson, Missouri, mm-hmm. uh, by a police officer. And okay. I was in that time, I was preparing to lead a trip of young men to Africa. So I had to come to Ghana to set up all the stuff. And at the same time, I was back in Ferguson marching with the NAACP. So mm-hmm. I'm marching with the NAACP, you know, just like talking about justice. and. It, it was very difficult because we had some of the most, and at least I've experienced, some of the most kind of vitriolic expressions of just disdain mm-hmm. for us mm-hmm. as black folks. Um, 
we had some folks in the audience that 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 looked like us that were saying stuff. We had a bunch of folks that didn't that were okay. saying stuff. And mm-hmm. then I, I have that experience, right? Where I feel like I am a stain on the fabric of America. Wow. And then right after that, a few months later, I go to Ghana, where I just exist as a human being. Mm-hmm. Like I can walk down the street and I literally have no consciousness or no cognizance that I'm black and the implications thereof. And, and it, was, it was difficult for me. True story, as I was coming back, I literally began to weep when I came back to yeah. the United States. That's, yeah. that's how I knew it was time to transition because wow. it felt like a baby being ripped from its mother. Like I literally wept for about a week because I went back and I came back into this environment where again, I feel like I'm just a stain on the fabric of America. I, mm. I looked at my wife and I said, babe, I think, I think the next move is Ghana. We took two years mm. of planning yeah, and then we made that transition. Wow. Well, that was an excellent, um, as you said, truncated bird, <laughs> bird, because I know it's more to it, but it definitely, as you said, it was a transformational, spiritual, cultural, all of the aspects of your being experience but you know when you said it something you said that it's like the chills came up for me is that like to just walk down the street and not have like that conscious awareness of race of like your color and that being Mm -hmm. you know only being seen through that lens so you know some people that may have never had that experience, they might listen and say, what you talking about, man? I mean, racism exists everywhere. I mean, you can't go there and say all of a sudden it's hunky-dory, right? But truly, yeah. as you talk about it there, my next question, you know, you can expand on that a little bit more, which is that, you know, your nationality is American and you currently live in Ghana, as you said, but for Black people in the U.S. who may be thinking about moving to Ghana, what should they know and understand about what you were saying that what are the elements that contribute to that difference? Why is it that there you have that experience, but then here in the U.S. you have a different experience? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say a couple of things is number one, just pure visibility, right? And representation. You, in America, mm-hmm. you're always reminded that you're different. I mean, you look yes. at the billboards, you go to the store, you look at the, the, the cartoons. I heard one member from my church one time, he was an older guy that we were bringing to Ghana, and he said something very powerful to me. He talked about cartoons, and he said he grew up watching the Flintstones, right, which was a representation of the past. And he yes. said, I didn't see myself in the, the Flintstones. He also grew up watching the Jetsons, which was a representation of the, oh, future. the future. He said, mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't see myself in the future either. Mm-hmm. So when I turned on the television, they didn't show me in the past or the future. Mm-hmm. And, I, and so, I thought that was powerful because so, so, so for a lot of black folks in America, you know, the representation is not there. And I think in Ghana, you, you, don't, really, you don't really have that issue. I mean, everywhere you go, people look like you. Um, so I think number one, just mm-hmm. the, the visual of that is, 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 is already overwhelming in a positive way. And I think yes. the second thing is um, I realized that, you know, culture is the thing that unites us when you go to different parts, depending on the part of the world that you go to. So when you come to Ghana, you are seen as an American. And um, 
because of some of the legacy of colonization, unfortunately, mm-hmm. right, there's stereotypes associated with being an American, positive stereotypes. However, um, you don't have the same level of a racialized context where mm-hmm. you, you are denied access to systems, to opportunities, and mm-hmm. all that simply based on the color of your skin. In fact, right. if you are American, regardless of your color, when you come to Ghana, you have something that you have privilege. You have American mm-hmm. privilege. Um, and that kind of puts you in position to have more access to different yeah. things. So I think number one is just the mere visual, right? That, that, that helps you understand that you're in a place that's different. And I think mm-hmm. the second thing is the access that comes with who you are um, is something that I, li- I think a lot of black folks have never experienced. You know, a lot of black folks feel like they're at the bottom, you know, they're second yes. class citizens um, in America. Mm-hmm. You come to Ghana, you literally get upgraded to first class citizenship. Come be upgraded. And I mean, for the psyche, so that means a lot. And essentially what you're talking about, some of it sounds like classism, right? Versus racism. So it doesn't mean that you're going to go anywhere in the world and escape some kind of ism. But when you are Mm -hmm. in the predominantly white um, places like North America, US, Canada, UK, it's a difference, right? Because as you said, it's the majority of people do not look like you. And because you have classism, in addition to racism, you know, you have these intersections of where progress becomes very difficult. And just as you said mm-hmm. earlier, internalizing a healthy aspect of yourself, as you said, feeling like a stain on America, because you get showed all of these negative stereotypical ideas of what being black is that goes in that becomes internalized into the psyche and that's where for some of us that internalized oppression comes in that even like within our own communities like intragroup issues right like it's not only cross-racial sometimes dealing with white folks in america is dealing with you know dealing with your own people yeah, yeah. You know, and one thing I'll say real quick is I can hear somebody right now thinking that they're listening to this or when they listen to this, if I'm going to experience isms everywhere in the world, I might as well just stay my black butt right here. And mm-hmm. what, I, what, I would, what I would say to that is this. The difference is, when you t- and it's very true, right? Classism definitely is very real here in God. The difference is when you talk about the, the, the legacy and the impact and the historicity of racism where yes. you have people in power, right, that automatically will perceive you as a threat mm-hmm. and, and act on that in such a degree where your life can end mm-hmm. based on that unconscious or conscious bias that exists versus Ghana where when people see you as a certain way and you're dealing with classism, yeah. you ain't going to be shot because a person says, oh, you're American, you're a threat, let me shoot you and then ask questions later. You're not going to be denied a place to live because a person sees mm-hmm. you in a certain class. You're not gonna, your children are not going to be denied an education mm-hmm. because you're seen in a certain way. And I think that's the biggest difference. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think a lot of people have never experienced that. Um, right. I, I can't articulate what it feels like. I mean, it really is liberating to simply be. I understand where you're coming from. I'm glad you brought that up because yes, folks can't um, send in questions today, but you can text in comments and I will get back with you um, or Mr. Swain will get back to you, but you're right. What is the difference is 
representation and the system structure. So in terms of isms, like when we think about class and socioeconomic structures, while it might be a challenge to break free, there may be a little bit more hope there in terms of what you can do. Race is something that we cannot change, right? You know, we're mm-hmm, born mm-hmm. into it and it's it's constant over time. So with racism, it's different because we have no power over race. Now, in terms of a structure like socioeconomics, while it may be difficult, it still is something that one can work towards in terms of like social class. So I think those are some of the differences that you're talking about there. For me, I'm first generation born in Guyana, South America, which people often confuse with Ghana, which is all good, but South America. So although I came over when I was very young and um, have a bicultural experience in the U.S., my worldview is still different because my parents come from a country where, as you said, they didn't experience some of what is experienced in America. Like my mother grew up seeing her mother vote from as early as she can remember. So she saw that she grew up in a country where she saw the leaders looked like her, you know, physicians, teachers, everything. So that's the difference that you're talking about. So when you see you, psychology, science, social learning theory, all of that already proves what a difference it makes when we can see ourselves Mm -hmm. in terms of when we learn. So I think that's what you're talking about. That's the difference. It's not that life is always going to have some level of stress because that's just how life is. But when we think about Mm -hmm. racism, that is what's different. Like when you are in places like Africa or the Caribbean, where you have a higher um, number or population of of people who look like you. So it it does, it it makes a difference. So just driving in your car, you you may not feel that level of fear like here in the US, like concern about being pulled over by the police um, and being harmed, possibly killed. So those kind of experiences are quite different, not being in like predominantly white countries or areas. So thank you for- Yeah, um, I was driving. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to share a quick story. Like I was driving in my car the other day, and I haven't registered for my new like uh, my my new driver's plates, and so I'm a target by the police. So I get pulled over by the police driving my son to uh, martial arts class. But I was thinking about how I, I knew it was coming, but mm. nowhere in my mind did I have any kind of fear. Any kind of anything. Mm. In fact, you know, a lot of times in this part of the world, the police are just looking for some money. A lot of times they're underpaid. So it's really kind of like an exchange thing. And so, you know, the guy started talking like, oh, I'm going to take you to jail and blah, 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 blah. But I knew it's just it's just talk. Right. So I get out the car. Um, we talk a little bit. But still, even in that exchange, like we're like we're laughing, we're joking. I give him a little something, something. And I'm on my way. But just mm-hmm. in that moment, nowhere in my consciousness was I'm going to be harmed from this. Yeah. I'm not like the negative ramifications are not going to come from this encounter. The worst thing that's going to happen is maybe my time is going to be delayed a little bit and I may have to come out of pocket maybe, you know, 20 or 30 Ghana CDs, which is the currency here. But there's no fear about my life or my son's life is in jeopardy in this, in this moment. And that's different. Very different. Yes. And and that right there helps us to have 
better physical health. So within America, that's where you see a lot of the different outcomes, which we've talked about on other shows, like when Dr. Your um, partner um, in in the business co-founder was on Dr. Meeks, we talked about that. Is your environment stressing you out? So if when you're when you're in an area that is more urban or there's more poverty, he talked about being exposed to more toxins, louder sounds, um, more crime. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, all of that impacts our health. Then access to care, the care that you get in those areas is it equal or equivalent to whites. Now, if it's not, this is where we see differences in outcomes also. So being aware of just being in a place like going to Ghana, your health physically could change because you have less release of cortisol, less stress hormones because you are in a space where you feel safer. So our environments true, do make a true. different uh, do make a difference in in that way too. And for many people, that's where they why many people are moving to the Caribbean, Africa, because just wanting a different experience. So it's not to say that you can escape all the stresses of life, but if you have been in one system over a long period of time and you're starting to feel that wear down, it may be that you're being called to a different space to prolong your life. Very true. Very true. So something for us to definitely um, keep in mind. So with, with your transition over there, what are some of the unique challenges um, you think are faced by Black Americans and Africans in terms of understanding each other? Because you have a unique experience now, right? You're not African, yeah, but you're living yeah. in Africa. You're African-American. Yeah. So what do you see as part of like the divide? What, what are some of the challenges? Ooh, wow, that's a <laughs> phenomenal question. I'm hitting you with that these heavy ones. <laughs> um, I think the biggest challenge um, is adjusting culturally to each other and understanding the implications that our culture has on each other. For example, um, when Black folks come to, Black Americans come to Ghana, they cease being Black and they are American. And there's a very distinctive set of characteristics that come with being American because we live in a society with so much freedom and so much choice, i.e., we are quick to speak our minds about things we like and we don't like. Um, even we have access, right? We don't have to tolerate certain things. Mm-hmm. And in Ghana, the culture is so different, right? Because you may not have access. So a lot of patience in terms of Ghanaian society, a lot of patience, a lot of meekness, a lot of not necessarily speaking up when there's conflict. And that comes into a direct clash oftentimes when you have Africans, um, in Ghana and African Americans together mm-hmm. because of what those different cultural values mean and how they come into conflict. Um, I can say that one of the biggest adjustments just that African Americans have, not necessarily in relationship to other Africans, but just in let's say if they move, if they if they come here for a vacation, it's everything is fun. Everything is fun. It's yeah. amazing because you're here for seven to ten days. You got a lot of money. You're partying. You're whatever. But if you're relocating here, you're actually going through those phases of cultural like assimilation mm-hmm. and adjustment. I yeah. think the biggest thing is people don't realize the level of access to so much that we have in the state. Economic access, um, even access to things like therapists, 
um, health care. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying the system in the U.S. is perfect, but you re- you quickly realize mm-hmm. <laughs> what you don't have when you're in an environment like this. Yeah. Um, and so some people, even let me just say one of the biggest challenges that people have when they come is a lack of capital. Like they come to Ghana, um, but they don't realize that Ghana is a capital like you have to have capital here because we don't have quite the level of, uh, you know, debt systems, uh, mm-hmm. financing systems to, to just, yeah. you know, houses and, and cars and stuff. And so if you don't have capital, oftentimes you're really, 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 um, you'll be really stressed out. You'll be really stressed out. But I think, um, yeah, just those cultural adjustments of realizing you're living in a totally different environment um, and you have to go with the flow in Ghana. And mm-hmm. I think... Because Ghanaians are so, um, I think I think Ghana is where America was in terms of Black folks, like about almost about a hundred years ago. Um, because we because we don't have as much exposure on the continent, right? We rely heavily upon um, external forces to assist us. Like in a Black church growing up, we, you know, God would work out everything. God, we don't have to mm-hmm. we don't have to pay no. We don't have to learn about financial stewardship. None of that. God is gonna work it out. Um, but now that if you've got more exposure to a lot more things, we realize there's a lot more things that we have agency over. But Ghana is that same way. And so Ghana is very spiritual. Um, and so a lot of time, you know, folks will come and it'll be, it'll be a very stark uh, difference in terms of like the Ghanaian way of doing things versus the American way of doing things. Um, and so I always tell people to pack some patience, you know, mm-hmm. pack, pack a container full of patience. Um, and just understanding, <laughs> I think the last thing is, yes. the, the last thing is this, we are privileged to have access to mm-hmm. information that can help us understand our histories. Whereas in Ghana, I had a person tell me one time, you don't understand, Tim, that for us to be woke in Ghana is a privilege. Mm. Because the mere access to go to a library, and yes, there are resources for us. But to go to a library, check out a book on mm. things that enlighten us about our history is an anomaly. To, to, to have those systems even mm-hmm. in place to learn about who we are. When there's a system that doesn't, uh, it's not a part of the socialization process. So it is a privilege to be woke. And for a lot of Ghanaians, um, they are just in survival mode. And we come sometimes unconsciously as like cultural evangelists trying to mm-hmm. lift people from uh, the depravity of their cultural and historical ignorance. You know, wear your hair like this. I'm not seeing, I've seen a lot of folks come and they're like preaching to Ghanaians, don't wear mm-hmm. perms, you know, wear your hair natural and do all this other kind of stuff without understanding the social implications yeah. of the decisions that the Ghanaian makes versus you being an American where you may not have to rely on this job to feed your family because you have options and you have access mm-hmm. and you have sometimes greater financial, um, you know, footing versus the average person. So I would just say those are some of the things I think come into conflict. Well, you know, cultural evangelists. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but as you, as you talk, it, it just, it sounds like give and take again, right? There's certain yep, things that yep. you're going to gain when you go there, but then there's also things that you will lose. 
So it's really doing like a cost benefit analysis. If you're thinking about it, like really looking at what's important to you on a value-based system, is it like 5G? So if that's the case, you might have to adjust. But if but if it's like, yeah, driving in your car. No, and we laugh, but truly, like if that is very important to you, things may move slower, right? So you have to be willing well, to do that. But at the same time, if you don't feel that level of stress, like just being in your community and driving and feeling safe, you gain in those areas. So it's a matter of someone really has to do the internal processing and thinking about what is important to them at, you know, whatever phase or journey of life. What am I going to gain? What am I going to um, lose? And keeping in mind that, as you said, colonization impacted, you know, the continent as well. So it's not that they are yeah. free from oppression. Oppression exists, but it, it, it's the phenomenon psychologically of like, are you alone in the boat or other people in, in the boat? So, you know, for Africans, mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. in the boat together in terms of understanding colonization and those who were stolen from Africa, those subsequent generations, it's now being together in, okay, what is the modernized type of racism that is being experienced now? So there's no escape per se. So that, mm -hmm. that's not the mm -hmm. key, but it's a matter of maybe balancing out in certain areas. And when you mentioned the concept of time, Africa's not alone. Caribbean, that's where we get it from. Like when you go to the Caribbean, things move slower. People do things in a different time. And when it's shut down time, it's shut down time. Like in America, it's OT, it's overtime. People are working 60, yeah. 70 hours a week, right? Maybe versus the 40 yeah. hours a week. So that's the difference is now there are things that you gain from that maybe pushing to that degree, but then there's also things that you gain if you're working less and maybe more time to focus on family or, you know, hobbies or interests, those kind of things. So really recognizing what, what is important. Yeah, right. Yeah. And people are very accommodating to those things because it, it is a, it is a, a widely agreed upon reality that there are so many externals beyond our control because of the environment here in Ghana that, you know, there's a general acceptance, for, there, there's a general allowance for some of those things. Tardiness, you know, what we call tardiness, we in Ghana, we call it Ghana man time, which is like CP time <laughs> on steroids. Yeah. Um, and all those other things, because people know that life happens. And yes. we don't have to force everything. And that also mm -hmm. gives a sense of like, sometimes you're walking to a meeting and there's not the pressure of like, the meeting starts at 10, 10 o'clock, right? And if you show up at 10.01, Yes. You're going to be rebuked, you know, and, and, and exactly. those little things really, it, it creates a sense of like, just like relax. We can especially, yeah, especially in PWIs, predominantly white institutions. And that's the thing about being in the pressure cooker of like America, Canada, UK. Like if you are back in these settings, it's like that minute or two that you're over, like your race does not permit. You hear that all the time in terms of stereotypes. Yeah. Oh, don't support and you know, don't support black business. Oh, they're slow. Oh, they're this and that. But you never hear that. You don't hear that about white business, not because they're a white business. We'll go to majority businesses that are white, but if there is problems, they are given the privilege and the space to work through that. But it is not minimized to a reductionist point of, oh, it's because it's a white business. 
business, but we hear that with Black business. So again, it's how we've been indoctrinated to think about ourselves mm -hmm. and our people and to mm -hmm. not have that level of grace and space to do things. Maybe it's just a newer business. Maybe they're still... Um, you know, building them themselves up and, and it can improve over time, but that doesn't have to be only limited because of their race, right? So that pressure cooker, you know, feeling in these environments, how we're all constantly like under a microscope in terms of how we're being judged, that definitely adds to, you know, what we call the race-based stress and trauma that it, that leads to a lot of in America, like hypertension, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes. Now I know it's not limited only to stress, it's nutritionally, how we eat, where we live, how we think, all of that, but being predisposed because of generations of trauma, it becomes important to say sometimes an environment may make a difference for some people in terms of what's needed. So Very I'm gonna, true. Very true. So I'm going to shift a little bit to have you talk about some other aspects um, of what you do professionally. So you're a poet, an author, speaker, award-winning performer. Tell us about <laughs> how you utilize art as a catalyst for social change. Because, you know, the, you know, my focus for this show is to decrease stigma about mental health, but recognizing that mental health isn't only through traditional forms of like psychotherapy. Mm -hmm, There's mm -hmm. healing that comes in all forms. So tell us about, you know, social change and your utilizing art. Yeah, well, my, my first love is spoken word poetry. That is my first love. Um, okay. And it gave me an opportunity to articulate myself in ways that I didn't know I needed to, um, especially as a young adult, when you're trying to process life and you don't have models to help you understand what it means to process different emotions and even recognize what you're feeling and how you're feeling. And so writing was uh, my cathartic process. And, and I realized that, um, especially when I began performing, I realized that, wow, this is an opportunity for me to articulate these same feelings for other people. Um, and when I had, again, I think my life is made up of just transformational experiences. So mm -hmm. I've had these transformational experiences performing and stuff like that. To be honest, number one is a gift from God. Like I, that, that, uh, I tell people it's a gift from God. But then when I went and kind of studied more about writing and creative writing and blah, 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 what I realized is, um, I, I keep, I've kept a journal since I was like 16 years old. And way beyond 16 now, so it's just years. <laughs> but, um, but it has been writing, right, in the arts yeah. has been a way for me, even to this day, right, as Beyonce Wilder would say, to this day, um, it has been a way for me to really release stress. Mm -hmm. Like, there are some times where I cannot, like, verbally articulate what I'm thinking and going through, mm -hmm. but I can write it down. Yes. And then there's also, I've, I realized recently that there are some things that I experienced in my perspective is really the way that it is. So I can create a piece of art that translates these thoughts and ideas so that it can help somebody else mm -hmm. who's having those same thoughts and ideas to know that they're not alone. And so, yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm, I've been performing for a minute and I really enjoy it because it gives me an opportunity to speak and be creative in ways where 
you know, in, in, in a regular conversation, you just can't bust out and yell at somebody, you know, because that would be inappropriate. Um, but on the <laughs> stage, you can do that, you know. On a stage, you can say what you yeah. want. You can articulate it in a way that you want. And as long as you add in a nuance of some kind of art to it, it's a little bit more socially acceptable. Even mm-hmm. those things that are a little bit kind of outside the box because it's kind of nuanced with some kind of creativity. So, uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I've been performing for a minute. Um, and I'm actually trying to start a, a open mic here in Ghana oh, uh, nice. because the art scene in Ghana is not as prevalent as it is in some parts of the state. And you have a mm-hmm. lot of young people who have the same thing where they're not kind of raised in a society where they're, they have the agency to speak out. And so mm-hmm. the art is not as kind of celebrated here, um, but mm-hmm. visual art, any kind of art. And so um, there's a lot of young people who really want an opportunity to, to, to speak out and, 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 and voice their, um, you know, their inner thoughts and feelings about life and stuff like this. So we're trying to do something here in Ghana where we give people the platform to do that. Wonderful, because life is art and art is life, right? It's it's interchangeable. I'm you, I'm and as you said, dear first love being spoken word, thank you for that shout out to journaling. Because as a therapist, I often, you know, um, recommend journaling. But the way you described it, it, it's great. It doesn't have to be, it's therapeutic, but it's not therapy. As you said, there's times mm. that you can't articulate in in words like what it is you want to say and you might get stifled because it might be frustrating like but I can't really say what I want to say but when you just allow yourself to write (laughs) as you said just free associate and it doesn't have to make sense just go with it one you get it out so on that level what is internally there like it doesn't have to build up at such a pressure because you're keeping it suppressed and within you're getting it out and then in addition to when you get get it out now you can be introspective with it in a different way too. You can reflect back on it, you know, and see what that meant at that time as you move forward, you can recognize all of that. So past, present, future, I think with writing is is, is helpful in, in that way. And as you said, art is just, it's another way. The art therapy is also something mm-hmm. that can happen in a formal way. So some people act, go to art therapy where literally their therapy is through art. And other times it may just be that it's a hobby, it's an interest, it's a career, but it helps people to feel balanced in, in that kind of way. So when there's things that you have in creativity and you know it helps to keep you in harmony, like a homeostasis and balance, if it, there's times that you can't get to that, you may see that there's a shift in, in mood. So you know, what you said there, it makes a lot of sense. Um, So you, in addition to the spoken word, you do a lot of writing. So you are the inspiration behind the Why I Write uh, anti-bullying campaign in London. Tell us a bit about that. So all of our London town people may know about that already, but um, our U.S. folks, you can put them up on that. Yeah, it was, it was a project that happened a long time ago. Ooh, probably, it was a while ago. Basically, I wrote a poem called Why I Write, and it was, I was challenged by a great mentor of mine, Dr. Sherry Ben. Shout out to Dr. Sherry Ben, um, Vice President of Student Affairs at that time at Texas State. And it, we had to write a, a poem about diversity. So I just, um, mm. you know, I just wrote a poem about different perspectives in terms of uh, racial diversity, um, you know, physical diversity, cultural diversity. And then there was a gentleman uh, that uh, we worked with 
who went back and forth to London and they were having some severe problems with bullying. Um, and so we got approached to utilize it as a platform to spear this campaign uh, for anti-bullying. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was they took young adults who memorized the poem. It was, it was a long poem. I don't write poems that long no more. It was like an eight-minute <laughs> poem. It was like okay. It was like eight minutes. It was like it was like some old school like. You know, R and B song. It just went on and on and on. On the B just, side, just yes, moves, just keeps going. <laughs> yeah, just, just keep going. But uh it was like a seven minute, it was like a it was like a mini production. But um but yeah, so they took it, um, they did it, um, you know, it made it to the BBC where they talked about anti nice. got a, a lot of got a lot of great feedback from people who really felt empowered. And I think again, it was just a testament that when you give people a platform to articulate what they think you mm-hmm. feel, oftentimes that is the first step. And helping people heal. Wonderful. Well, um, folks, eight, check out that eight minutes moment. You, as you said, you moved on to do um, things a little bit more succinctly, but it may be that's what was called for at the time. But also thinking about London, another space that's predominantly white. So for being black in those spaces mm-hmm. also feel different. And London, the UK has a different history to the US too. So racism over there can be very subtle in, in other kind of ways, whereas like here in America, you know, the civil rights movement has like been so predominant in like the, the last several decades, whereas some of that may be a little bit different in the UK. So I can definitely see where some of that um, is necessary. So we're winding mm-hmm. down on time. So I definitely want you to be able to tell us a bit about Anidaso 360 because you have an upcoming trip in September, I believe. So please give our listeners some information about this, like how they can get more information if they're interested. Also, if you have any spaces left, please tell them about that. Yes, yes, yes. If you are listening right now, when you listen to this, okay, I am the voice that you've been seeking confirmation on. It is time yes. to come to Africa. Yes. I am your confirmation. You know, Black folks, we always need confirmation. Looking for a sign. I am. <laughs> I am your sign. I am your confirmation. In yes. this particular situation, it's time to come to Africa. So uh, we, we are doing a, it's, it's a 10-day experience mm-hmm. where it's a multi-generational uh, trip. It is uh, September the 2nd through the 14th, uh, 10 days, um, and 11, no, 11 days, 10 nights in Ghana. Uh, the trip focuses on leadership development. We do all the touristy things where we're taking you to the last bath, uh, which is where Africans who were enslaved had their last bath before they were sold um, to wherever they went in the world. Mm-hmm. We're taking you to the door of no return, which is where they told Africans, once you pass through this door, you're never coming back. We're going to see historical sites like Kwame Nkrumah, which is the first president of Ghana, his yeah. memorial, the W.E.B. Du Bois Museum. And then on top of that, we have networking opportunities where you're going to talk with okay. other Ghanaians, other Nigerians, other Caribbeans who are in Ghana about mm-hmm. what it's like to live in Ghana, what it's like mm-hmm. to do business in Ghana, what it's like to find love and relationships in Ghana. Okay. So it's really set up to Those help you y'all looking to settle immerse- down. Listen. If you are looking for your African cream or your yes. African queen, there you go. They are here. There they you are go. Here. <laughs> so, you know, because we really want to have an experience that truly immerses people in the culture 
And we do have just a couple spots left, and the website is simply A-N-I-D-A-S-O-360.com. And all you can just type uh, Sankofa, which is S-A-N-K-O-F-A, um, 360.com. And then that will take, oh, sorry, type in Sankofa360 on Anidaso360.com. Uh, and then it'll give you all the information that you need about our trips and how to register. But there is a couple spots left. And so folks need to register as soon as possible because it's coming September to the 2nd to the 14th. We have payment plans available. Uh, mm-hmm. The trip cost um, is, Lord have mercy, let me look it up. Let me look it up right now. I believe 40, 4,500. And check the websites because you know, folks, that's not what he said. <laughs> I'm finna look. I'm, I'm looking right now because I'm messing around. No, he told me 4,500. It, it was actually 47. Nah, mm-hmm. let me check right now. 47. It was actually 47. Okay. And, but this Excellent. includes this. This. This is all inclusive. This is your international ticket. Yes. This is your meals. This is your. Uh, mm-hmm. This includes everything except for your passport. Um, mm-hmm. visa and immunization because people vary in terms of what they have for those particular areas but everything else we tell people you can literally come to Ghana with no money and you'll be taken care of we don't recommend <laughs> that because we know folks like to shop yes but every, that's everything included I'm telling you uh, guys this is an experience like none other yes. I would love 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 to see you and Ghana with me in September. Yes, I wish I could have been there this year, but have some other commitments. So next year, I'm putting it out to, to be there um, with you all. Before we wrap up, typically we would have folks texting questions when we're live, but we did, we weren't able to do that with the pre-recording, but our showrunner and one of our producers had a great has a great question. So we can make this our last question, which is, and since you're talking about the trip, so remember, folks, Anidaso 360, A-N-D-I-A-S-O, dot com, 360.com? Yep, A-N-I-D-A-S-O, 360.com. Awesome. So before we wrap up, so this is our showrunner's um, question. What are some of the changes that take place within a person that one need to be aware of when embarking on the journey home, either temporarily or permanent? So I think that goes perfectly with what you just talked about with the trip. So for people who maybe haven't been to the continent, what should they be aware of embarking on the journey home, either temporarily or permanent? Um, what should they be aware of embarking on the journey home, either temporarily or permanently? I think what they should be aware of is, number one, um, it, it's, a, it's a very small amount of time. Let's say if you go temporarily, but you have a small window that can literally transform the rest of your life. Okay. Um, the second thing I'll say is um, just, you know, it's hard because there's so much. I think the other thing would be just knowing that... Um, there's just so much that we have yet to learn about ourselves mm-hmm. and experience oftentimes creates pathways where uh, they become transformational tools to set us up to be who we're supposed to be. And I think that um, not just tra- sound all philosophical and theoretical, but I think <laughs> um, like those are the things that are biggest things, right? I mean, there are some yes. basic things in terms of like people need to prepare stuff like visas and stuff like that. Those are things that, yeah. you know, obviously we can help people with. But like those big things, I think mm-hmm. that we really don't know who we are. And when you go to a place where you, you're able to really see 
taste, touch, feel, experience yeah. the origins yeah. of not just you, but humanity. Yes. That is absolutely positive. That millions, of, and years, that, you that millions of years ago, first people, yes. you know, right. Yes. And, and, and the last thing is, it can set you up to be the gateway for your family and your generation yes. so they can see themselves how God has created them to be. And you may be the person to change the tide on the narrative to help open up a gateway for transformation in your family. But I think most importantly, to really position them mm -hmm. to, to, to be something different than America and any other racialized context says that they are. You could be that person. Love it. So, I mean, transformation, I think that's just a key in everything we've talked about today. So transformation, meaning not going back to being the same, like this is an experience that after that you will be forever changed. So I encourage everyone to um, look on the website, get more information. Uh, once this is out, we're also going to play your video, the wonderful video you have that comes along with this to tell us. So as you mentioned, it's all inclusive in terms of trip transfers, all of that, but doesn't include passport. Um, folks may need to get immunization. So is that something that yep. you may have listed um, in terms of what people need to look into? Yeah, and all that all that is on our website. It tells Wonderful. you exactly what's included, what's not included. It got it got pictures and all that, you know. Excellent. So yeah. So come on with us. Let's let's let us help you go to New Horizons. Wonderful. So, you know, as we prepare to wrap up, there's never enough time, but thank you so much for in this hour, just like packing a powerful punch in terms of what racial healing from racial trauma can look like through some of these um, experiences and exposure to culture. We I've asked you a lot of questions today. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? I just want to thank you all for having a platform to, to do this. You know, there's so much information out there in the world. Uh, so much of it is not as beneficial for our community. It's not yes. beneficial for people. It's a lot of bubblegum stuff. But you all are highly qualified, highly educated people breaking down complex things in simple, digestible format for people to be healed. And I'm telling you, this type of content is so needed. And I just yes. want to thank you guys for being able to do this. Um, because it really is powerful. So we appreciate it. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Intentional Talk Radio Network. You know, it's it's about changing the narrative because change matters. So we thank you so much, Mr. Tim Swain, for being with us today on New Horizon, the Mind and Body Connection on Intentional Talk Radio Network. Uh, our next show will be February 26th. Thank you to our listeners across the globe and for friends and family who cannot listen live today. Um, the podcast will be available um, very soon and please share it with all of your community. Talk about Anidaso360. Think about um, joining that and remember a healthy mind and healthy body is key to longevity. Take care, everyone. Mama tell me cut it.